Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. Good morning, gentlemen. Shalom. Shalom. Whoa. That's my word. I know. Sorry. I'm, I'm off today. There you go. <laughs> Today's episode is unofficially sponsored by Brickhouse Coffee Co. And we have fresh Brickhouse Coffee that we have poured this morning. It's glorious. As a gift from Robin. Robin Meyer. Thanks Thank for, you. she was going through Williamsburg and stopped to get us a bag. So take note, Thinklings listeners, that's a wonderful practice. <laughs> you guys are horrendous. Also, unofficial sponsor, Porchlight Coffee House. And... The pre-workout that my niece's husband gave me, and I can see through time right now. Yikes. I took some pre-workout this morning. I've never done this, Charlie. Now, you have been in weightlifting before, so I have a question for you. I was able to do way more sets at this one point. I just stopped because I thought, what's going on? So my question for you is, if you take pre-workout, is it like the energy of the Holy Spirit giving you to obey the commands of God? (laughs) Or is it like... A seared conscience where you don't know what damage you're actually doing to your body. Because I quit. I'm like, this is weird. And I got like itchy and tingly all over. It's weird. Yeah. So it's my so... my caution with pre-workout is it's going to act just like coffee. Okay. So it's it's a stimulant. <laughs> so over time, the same amount does less to you and you're forced oh. to use more of it. So okay. I would actually caution you what, not to use it pretty much almost ever that's that's my plan he gave me some to try and i was like i'll try it i mean i I don't i don't think it's wrong to you know i mean i would just you know a cup of coffee does the same thing but i mean actually there's way more caffeine in that in the pre-workout and other stimulants and weird there's like i looked at the ingredient list it Mm -hmm. was weird i don't know i'll probably finish out the like little baggie he gave me which by the way a baggie of white powder it's that was a weird thing so do what you gotta do All right, so here's what's in this episode. We have some weekly wisdom. We have some listener feedback, which we kind of already mentioned, but we'll do it again just for good measure. And then we'll do that thing we always do where we talk about some books. And then Tim will give us a little preview of the main content, which is about divorce and remarriage. A great, it'll be a great episode. Uh, Looking forward to uh, having you guys listen in on that. It was really good. So with that, here's where we'll put in that sound. Excellent. So this is this week's weekly wisdom. A friend sent me a song a while back with some really good words and I'd never heard of it before, but I was listening to uh, Holst's planets series, classical music. And I really like Jupiter in the middle. There's this really great theme and I just love it. And I've always loved this part. And I found out that they've taken that theme and put biblical words to it. And so I'm just going to read some of these words, and I they often bring me to tears, so I think I can make it through it, though. So at the end of the, the song, the second half, it says, Then hear, O gracious Savior, accept the love we bring, that we who know your favor may serve you as our king. And I just thought that was good poetry. And then it says, And whether our tomorrows be filled with good or ill, we'll triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless you still, to marvel at your beauty and glory in your ways. And make a joyful duty our sacrifice of praise. And the line about triumphing through our sorrows gets me almost every time because it reminds me of second or first Peter three, where you're going through suffering and you're just getting destroyed. But the believer, the true believer doesn't like 
Like they stand up and they bless the Lord. And it was just, I know it's not a Bible verse this week. Um, and it's, it's just a song quote, but I just thought that was, that was a beautiful picture of Christianity. Beautiful. And it means something to me personally. So, um, <clears throat> Dr. Like, Van Hoosers last year as our chorale director, this was a part of his oh, program. You're kidding. And uh, so this was a part oh. of that European chorale as well. Wow. And so that was the first year that I drove for the chorale on their spring tour. And then I actually, uh, Dr. Van, it was so funny. He came to my office one day and he's like, you know, Charlie, I think you need to come to Germany with us. That is, oh, and I was awesome. like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I just think it'd be really fun if you just showed up in Germany. <laughs> And like, and then just like toured around with like, he's like, you don't have to drive. We've got a bus driver, but just to be there. And I think it's just, uh, I think he had, uh, valued just the, the, you know, yeah. the pep, yeah. we'll call it the pep that Charlie brings <laughs> to a group of college students. And so I think he wanted that to like, kind of be on the last leg. So that's, so I went to Germany and so I heard that song oh. sung by our chorale probably oh. like 30 or 40 times. And yeah, it's very, and I, I did not know that it was like an adaptation of a secular song with Christian lyrics. Yeah. I just thought that was the song. And there was one day I was in a coffee shop and they're playing the, the Jupiter and yeah. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. And the, I don't know who it was like the barista or someone was like, yeah, Jupiter by whoever. Christ, right. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. God, uh, you know, um, oh God beyond all praising. God, oh God beyond all praising. And they're like, oh. mm? but yeah. So I don't know if there's any recordings. Of I would that, love that. But um, I would love it. There, there a... might be like if you found like the Spring Corral tour mm -hmm. on YouTube from like Faith Stream, there might I should be look there. That but... up. The other thing that reminds me of is just Job. It's Job. Yeah. Like, no matter how you're, like, do you really love the Lord? And if you do, then no matter what comes at you, you serve Him. And yeah. You stand back up and praise Him. And so there it's was... just it's a very moving song. So listener... yeah, there there were a couple of songs that year of the tour that just were. They, Very impactful. Did they sing Do Not Be Afraid that year? Yes. That one. Oh, for our family, that was like it big. is not, it is mm. not death to die. Oh, that's um, a, oh yeah. yeah. Classic. Any and that was mm. so that spring break, which is like late February, early March, mm -hmm. was right about the year anniversary mark of when oh, my dad had passed mm. away. And so I would I would be Beautiful. sitting in the front couple pews and yep. the corral members like knew this, like that I would just be sobbing by the yep. end of it. And uh yeah, it was yeah, beautiful. It is so, I don't know how to put a word in it, put it into words, but it's so interesting the way beauty and theology captured together when you've walked a dark road will do that to you. Because I, yeah. I, I got through it today, but almost every other time I will tear up at this point. And I can't sing in the car, I lose it. Once we get off air, I've got some more songs for you. Anyway. <laughs> um, all right. Well, listener feedback. We'll probably put another whoosh in here. Uh, Andy, do you want to say this again for the second time? <laughs> <laughs> so we just want to thank uh, Robin Meyer for bringing us Brickhouse Coffee. We were very thankful for that. Is this the listener feedback? Am I seeing mm -hmm. that correctly? Mm -hmm. Yeah. She she asked me where it was like two weeks ago at Kids for Truth. And uh, so, yeah, we're just very thankful. We're drinking it right now. It tastes very good. Thanks for bringing it for us. And I can't verify this, but I think it tastes just a little better it coming does. off of a Thinkling's Coaster. Yep. <laughs> made by Paul Avery. That's right. And I'm drinking it in a brick house mug. It's, so it's the Trinity. It is. It's, a, <laughs> it's horrendous. The podcast Trinity. Oh my word. <laughs> books in business. <laughs> Let's talk about some books. Okay. I'm starting us off, I think. 
Yep, you're starting. Uh, yeah, Tim. you are. So I uh, just Wait. Tim knowing the order of the episode. What's going on? <laughs> My wife actually read Knowable Word for. Uh, it wasn't a vacation. My my grandma passed away, and we went to the funeral in New York. And so on the road, uh, she was reading while I was driving, at least part of the time. Uh, and so I I listened to Knowable Word by Peter Krull. I know Andy has recommended this book on a few different Love occasions. Uh, this is the revised and expanded edition. Uh, I don't know how much they really changed, but it was a really good, simple book. And it did not take long. Like she was reading it out loud and it was only a very small portion of our trip where she read through the whole thing. So it's, it's like 160 pages, but it's, it, it goes really pretty quickly. It's pretty small with a bigger font. Uh, I would recommend this book. I'd probably put it at a seven on the thinkling scale. Mm -hmm. If you're a lay person and you're like, you know what? I just want to learn how to study my Bible better. This is a very accessible book that you can read uh, for you fathers out there. If you're like, you know what? I want to teach my family how to study the Bible better. This would be a great book that you could read for like family devotions around the supper table, read a few pages uh, a night, and uh, and then transition to, hey, you know what, this is something we need to do as a family, and then lead your family in uh, more Bible study. So the first chapter is why study the Bible, which I was going to just kind of I almost even told her, babe, just skip this one because <laughs> I know we need to study the Bible. But it's actually one of the best chapters where he really gives a hmm. plug hmm. Uh, for the necessity for everybody to study the Bible. It's yeah. not just a academy, uh, me type of a thing, uh, like like as an academic type of a thing, but but everybody needs to do it. And he kind of concludes with that same idea. In the appendix, he has this one, this this chapter, You Are Approved, where he basically hits on that same idea, where as a Christian, you can do this. Uh, a lot of times we put the Bible up on some high shelf and think that only guys with PhDs or professors or whatever can study it, but that's not the case. If you know how to read, you can put sentences together and uh, and you can do it. So, Knowable Word uh, by Peter Kroll. Uh, that was the book that um, I have for my books of business today. I love that book. It's the go-to recommendation when I'm out speaking on Bible study at churches. It's really good, really good. All right, so <clears throat> listeners, I do not owe Tim and Charlie a bag of coffee because I finished a gospel primer. Woo! I was I was not going to be sad if I if I had to give you guys coffee. So go you. Okay. Um, I liked this book. It was really good, and I think there's a couple of use cases. But I want to make one critical comment. Um, it is not arranged well. So I was talking to someone who else who had read it, and the final chapter is called "Surprised by the Gospel," which I didn't know if that was an homage to Lewis. It didn't end up being an homage. In it, he tells the author tells his story of trying to always be in God's good grace, and he's he's driving down the road, and his mind wandered, and then he stops, and he's like, "Oh man, what was I thinking of? Is there any sins I committed? Do I need to confess anything?" And he sounds a lot like if you've read Martin Luther's testimony, where he's just confessing every little thing he can think of. And so this guy's a pastor at the time; he's grown up in the church, and so this was his story of understanding the way the gospel works and it frees you from that kind of introspective earning it earning god's favor he has a couple of good quotes i don't think i have the one that i wanted right here yeah he says this 
He said, I suppose I would have imagined God saying, yeah, technically you're justified, but I'm angry with you anyway for what you did today. And I thought he just really captured my own experience as a Christian. And so who is this book for? If you are a Christian who has a heavily introspective conscience or um, a highly tuned conscience or you're just a Christian who always is afraid of God and wishes God was, wishes you could just live in a way where God would be okay with you. This is going to be a helpful book, but read the last chapter first. There's only four chapters. Then go back to the beginning and start going forward. So let me just talk a little bit about the setup of the book. And I would recommend this. I would give it a seven on the goodness scale. And off air, we did a three, two, one count. And Charlie gave it a six, do I remember correctly? So I think like it is a pretty good one. Part one are reasons to rehearse the gospel daily. Charlie, you were right. Two points for you. He's quoting Jerry Bridges when he said it. So you, you totally called that. And it's it's good. It's the longest chapter. And there's like 31 reasons to rehearse the gospel daily. And some are some are really good. Some are okay. But even like, um, so here's one. He talks about the power of God. He says, outside of heaven, the power of God in its highest density is found inside the gospel. And so he walks through places in scripture where the gospel is called the power of God. You'll think about like Romans 1.16 and some others. And the other cool thing about the book is I'm just going to show you guys, every time you quote scripture, it's printed in the bottom as the like footnote. So I liked that. In 2019, when Robin got cancer, people would send us cards with scripture written out. And you just don't have mental energy to go look up a Bible verse. But actually, I have it now, but like it was just handy to have it right there. But he says later, he says, indeed, God's power is seen in erupting volcanoes, in unimaginably hot boil of our massive sun, in the lightning speed of recently discovered stars that streak through the heavens at 1.5 million miles an hour. Yet, in scripture, such wonders are never labeled the power of God. And that was helpful for me because I do a lot of creation thinking and apologetics, and I like think that's a huge evidence of God's creation. But what does scripture call the power of God? It's actually the gospel. So that was really good. And then he has this, um, it's almost like 95 theses is what it seems like. It's a prose version of that where it's just logical statements and they're like numbered. That was very good. And then he has a third section where it's all poetry. And that was just a joy to read. It's essentially what is the gospel how does salvation work? So anyways, I really liked it. It was a gospel primer. I tried to read it a couple of times and the problem was starting at the beginning and not knowing the purpose of the book. So I'd recommend it. Yeah. I, you know, again, I'd have to go back and listen. Mm -hmm. It's, it's kind of sad to be like, I have to listen to what I said before (laughs) to know what I think, you know, it's kind of (laughs) dumb to remember, (laughs) but your assessment is seems very similar to me. Mm -hmm. The, The issue I, it's not really an issue. I would just say, well, I'll just walk through it. So what would be the, the problem with preaching the gospel to yourself every day? The yeah. easy answer is nothing. Okay, there's nothing wrong with reminding yourself of the gospel. But does a believer actually need the gospel again? And in the sense of salvation, no. But if the truth of the gospel encourages you to yield and submit what you're Mm -hmm. actually doing. You're not actually believing the gospel. You're walking in the spirit. So I think you could more precisely describe the phenomena that's happening, which is the word of God used by the spirit of God is helping you walk under the control of the spirit. 
And, and I, I do think it, for me, it was more of like a categorization yep. and like an organizational issue. And I don't know if I quite articulated it as well as you did, because hearing you talk about it, I'm like, oh yeah, that is yep. the struggle I was having. If they had um, like a really good editor, like say Tim Little, go mm. through this and reorganize it, it would be a better book. But then what you just said is true. So he made this statement. Um, he's talking about putting on the armor of God and whatnot and taking up the, and the whole armor of God. He says, translated literally from Greek, these are the salvation, the justification, the truth, the gospel of peace, the faith, and the word of God. What are all these expressions but various ways of describing the gospel? And so I would say at times I think he's pressing the gospel I think idea a little too much. So like the word of God, is the word of God the gospel? Is it good news? Yes. But what you said, there's like a salvation element. Yeah. And then there's like the how God works in our life element. And he's putting those together. And, and it's true. It is. It's a fun theological imaginary it thing. To think. It it's is. like soteriology, you have salvation. And then most people put sanctification in yep. that zone. Mm -hmm. So as an extension of the deliverance that the gospel gives us is yes. the change that God brings in our lives. Yeah. Ro our, our Pastor Lance, he's starting to preach through Romans. So this Ooh. past week or depending on, yeah. So that'll be good. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is the gospel, the power of God unto sanctification as well? Uh, you know, I, you think through that yeah. question imaginatively, the answer is yes, yeah, but you could also say the Holy Spirit is the power yep. of God unto sanctification and uh, learning to walk in the spirit, yeah. you know, seems to be the pattern of the New Testament Christian. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure if you know, I, I, I would, I can't in heaven someday we will ask Paul, what do you think about <laughs> preaching the gospel to yourself yes. every day? And yeah. then we'll, we'll know fully and perfectly, but overall it's fine. Yeah. And what I would say is, I think it's the problem is like what you said, it's the labeling. What does he mean by preach the gospel to yourself? It's not tell yourself the salvation plan every day. It's like, what is God doing? Which is why you're submitting to the spirit makes a lot of sense. It's just a broader definition of the gospel. Exactly. But I think he's working against, and he's doing that on purpose. Cause he, he says at the beginning, people get saved by the gospel and then it's like, they don't need it anymore. He's trying to broaden out. It's almost like the gospel's, effect and how you see the effect every mm. day. And you need to remember that. But also I, I would still say like, don't take these criticisms. If you have a really introspective conscience and you always think God's mad at you, this is a really good book. It's a yeah. really, really good book. Mm. But the, but the preach the gospel every day. If you misunderstand what he's saying, you're going to walk away with this. Yeah. I don't think it harms thing. the reader in any Thanks. way. No, I, I don't have a problem with the idea of preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Uh, really connecting it to the idea of belief and then yes. combining the idea yes. of belief in John with yep. the idea of belief in Romans and mm -hmm. the idea of belief in James. Yeah. Because mm. it is unbelief. Yes. You begin to, to unbelieve what God's done for you. Right. You don't yep. believe God's and that's going to, good. Mm -hmm. yeah, you don't believe yep. that God's really going to provide for you. Yep. So what do you start doing? You, you start to, you don't believe that God's knows what's best for you. So mm -hmm. what do you start doing? You start living according to the flesh. Exactly. So connecting the gospel idea to belief, living out belief, it's not just a belief that I did, it's a belief that I live. And that connects to then the fear of the Lord. Mm -hmm. so. And that would be a strength of the book. So he, he not labors, belabors, but he really is clear about how wrath works and how it's all gone. And so I do think there's times where you believed God took the wrath away when you got saved. And he's like, but then you like go back to thinking the wrath is on me. And so I do think there's, there's like applications of the, so I, I would, I think it's good. 
overall. Man, that was we should have just done a whole. I wondered if we have a lot. I wasn't sure if we would. Well, I um, I've thought of like having an episode on the fear of the Lord and its connection to belief. And so, what is maybe like the idea in the New Testament? Believe. Believe. Okay. Well, why do we not see belief in the Old Testament? There's it, other words for it. There's other words for it. And what is like the common word for belief in the Old Testament? Fear. Fear the Lord. There, there are other words, though. There are other words, but I would, I'm, this is an idea I'm working through right now, uh, where it'll probably be a future content. And so if we want to revive this conversation, we so can. I, I do, yeah. But we'll, the correlation we'll <laughs> between what does it mean to fear the Lord? Yeah. To fear the Lord means that I believe. And so that's like the whole theology of the entire Bible. Anyway. Yeah, we should come back to that. That's a very interesting topic. But So for my books and business, I'm going to try to be quick, but I'm going to read a text message from July 12th of 2018. Oh, wow. Oh, this is so good. I'm so excited. Yes. So this is from Tim Little. Also, Stearns and I were talking. I would like to p- start putting some of my dating ideas down on paper and introduce them to the th- thinklings for super duper examination and criticism. I'm going to try to put together a page or so for each meeting, personal goal. And then Andy liked that. So that's, uh, you know, five, six years prior. And I'm prefacing with that text to say that I finally finished reading. What became of that text message, which is the Song of Songs for Singles. So cool. Good job. And uh, yeah, so I I just think it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, One of our goals was to encourage each other to write, and we're doing that. And uh, Tim, just thank you for you and your wife's contribution, uh, both to my spiritual life, but then all the other readers as well. And uh, so going back to an idea we've kind of batted around, I would say that I would wholeheartedly recommend this as a formative book to anyone on the topic of sexuality and dating. That it's exegetical from the text. We learn what God's, uh, what a wise understanding of sex and sexuality is from the song. And that's why it's there, which is why I think it is a, a great book. Um, be honest with you, I thought you were kinder to singles than you would be. Huh? So when I finally got to the end where you're talking, like directly talking to singles uh, about like, hey, you know, kicking the pants, go get married. I was, <laughs> I was expecting to find something there that I'd be like, oh man, I'm going to have to disagree with him. But it, you were, you were milder at moments than I thought you would be. And uh, yeah, overall, uh, a very helpful book. Uh, I don't have any direct uh, quotes or anything like that. Um, but I do think it is pretty neat to have a book where they do differentiate at times who's speaking. So Tim will be saying something or Angela will be saying something. And, uh, I don't think I've read a book that's ever done that. Yeah. Um, so to have a husband and a wife, uh, I think faithfully teach from the song is really good. And so, uh, really, I think everyone should, um, you know, how, how do you not rate a book written by a thinkling as a 10 on the thinkling's goodness scale? You give it a six and add four. You give it a so Okay, I like that. So officially, officially, it's a six plus four. There we go. 
And uh, for real, I, I, I really do think, listener, if you have not purchased this book and read it, you should invite Tim and Angela into your life through the book and let it form you. And it will inform you about a book of the Bible that you, you probably have not uh, studied prior. And so it's really worth your time. So a six plus four. Tim, thank you for your work. That's It's really encouraging. So, Thanks. And uh, on that note, Tim, <laughs> as I promo his book about Song of Songs for Singles, where he gives a very high view of marriage and sex and all that fun stuff, why don't you preview our episode where we're going to talk about divorce? And tomorrow's Valentine's Day, so this is dropping at like the perfect time, it's so people. so spicy. Oh, <laughs> it's good. Anyway, so good. give us a quick preview. So uh, this is kind of a longer episode, as you've already looked at from the timestamp. And the reason for that is because the topic of divorce is a very sensitive topic. And uh, the issue of remarriage, uh, it's affected basically all of us. So uh, what does God's word have to say uh, concerning divorce and then remarriage? Uh, I would contend that Jesus upholds marriage as the ideal and that it's... um, a very good thing, uh, but at the same time, it's something that you should know what you're signing up for. Um, so even connected to the idea of Song of Songs for Singles, most people should marry. Well, what does that mean? Especially when the disciples in Matthew 19, 10 through 12 are like, boy, if this is the way it is with a man and his wife, then maybe it's better not to marry. Uh, so if Jesus's ethic for marriage is so high that it would cause the disciples to respond in that way, then I think that we should really teach our young people, this is what you're signing up for. If you're going to get married, this is what you're agreeing to. So with that, I pray that you would enjoy this episode. Listen with an open heart. Study these things for yourself. And if you've already erred in this area, well, even as Paul commends in 1 Corinthians 7, Stay as you are and be faithful to the Lord now. Walk in faith starting today. Let's have a conversation about marriage and divorce. So we've had a few people reach out to us about this specific topic, and it's kind of a landmine of a topic, but uh, we're going to jump into it anyway. Uh, One listener even uh, wrote in, Uh, requesting a topic, would you consider dedicating an episode or part of one to the topic of divorce? So this is partly coming from a listener. And uh, then we've had some other people just kind of converse with us about it. As as uh, As a book if you're like, hey, show me a book that might help help me think through some of the topics with, with this discussion. I'm also going to recommend a title, Jesus, Divorce, and Remarriage in Their Historical Setting by Gordon Wenham. This is a pretty accessible title. Uh, it's only mm, 120-some pages, and it's not very large. So uh, pretty much anybody could pick this up and kind of work through it. I will tell you, though, you'll probably need to jump into the Bible on multiple occasions to verify what the author is saying. Uh, yes, you had something? Just a quick question about that title. Yeah. I, and you might, you may have been planning to say something like this. How how fully can you endorse, you know, where where would you rank what he's presenting as far like wholeheartedly you could give that to someone and agree with it or can you give me a sense there yeah i would agree um nearly 100 percent uh with uh where he's at i've got a couple of questions still um 
Let me explain a little bit about who Gordon Wenham is and then maybe how I even came across this title. It's a Lexham Press title, which is not like um, one of the major publishing houses within Christianity. Uh, and um, Gordon Wenham has written uh, one of the best commentaries on Genesis in the Word Biblical Commentary series. If you go to like bestcommentaries.com, uh, you can, you'll see Gordon Wenham's two-volume set on Genesis at the, at the top of the list. Uh, he has written some additional commentaries, and whenever I see something by him, I'm typically picking it up as an Old Testament scholar. So when you're coming to a book where he's talking about a practical issue like divorce, you're not getting, you know, soccer mom's blog all right, you're getting somebody that actually knows their Old Testament, their Bible, and they're interacting with um, the issues and the texts that are relevant to the discussion. So there's a couple of areas that I'm still uh, not quite sure on, but he actually pushed me and um, pushed me in my understanding of, of uh, particularly Matthew 19, uh, but it didn't have a major impact in the practical application. And that's where I do want to even, as we begin this conversation, uh, this is a very sensitive topic, and uh, you should submit to your pastor's guidance uh, in this issue. He is the one that is the guide for your soul. He's the shepherd of your soul. So this is a, a very sensitive topic that impacts a lot of people. So I want to be very sensitive to your pastor's position as we embark on this journey as well. Now, as I say that, uh, what I'm going to say is probably going to push most people uh, most of our listeners. In fact, in Matthew 19, which is one of the key texts, the Pharisees brought it up for a specific reason. They brought it up because they wanted to test Jesus. Jesus had a large following. So what is something you can do to diminish an individual's following? Well, discredit them, number one. You That'd can be like discredit them. That'd be one thing. Yep. Okay. What would be another thing? Split the group on a controversial issue. Boom. Okay. So you split the group on a controversial issue. So that's going to then, uh, you know, a lot of people have already come to their own conclusions on a specific issue. And, and so you, you're like, well, let's bring up this topic. He's going to lose some of the people. So, so, so that's going to be an important uh, step or exegetical note as you even get to Jesus' instruction from Matthew 19, because there were the two houses, the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel, which the rabbis seem to be referring to. Uh, and Jesus actually doesn't side with Shammai, nor does he side with Hillel. So in other words, who does he ostracize? Both. Everybody. Which is why, how did the disciples respond after his uh, statement? Is that what you call the nuclear option? Yeah. I mean, it's like Jesus goes the, nuclear yeah. on them. In Whoa. fact, if he's going to disenfranchise or lose a following, even his very own disciples are making a statement, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So who did Jesus ostracize by making his pronouncement about divorce? Even his own followers. Even his very close followers. Oh, like yep. everybody, huh. nobody liked him. So from a quote-unquote political perspective, I mean, Jesus ticked everybody off, which illustrates a fear of man and fear of God. And it's like, well, who am I fearing? Am I going to fear God or am I going to fear man? Jesus just cuts straight and says, listen, this is the way that it is. And then in Matthew 19, 11 and 12, you know, he talks about eunuchs and, and uh, you know, 
all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. It's like, yeah, most people are, don't like what I just said. I recognize mm. that. Mm. So that wouldn't really fly in the modern advertising and optics no. culture of our uh, building nope. businesses. Nope. Okay, so this is uh, the discussion. We're going to jump into this and, uh, you know, maybe we'll lose a few followers or whatever. But hey, you know what? Hopefully you think about this um, and um, and hopefully you can live a holy life before your Lord, uh, regardless of the situation or the circumstances or the trials that God providentially brings in your path. So let's begin with uh, marriage in the ancient world. Well, what was marriage uh, like well, it was usually a contractual agreement between two families. Uh, there was a bride, a bride money that was paid uh, to the uh, bride's family, which affected the betrothal. And at that point, a couple was married. And to terminate that union, the which was not a physical union yet, by the way, to terminate that, it required actual uh, divorce. Uh, and so it's like, well, how much was this bride money? Well, it was between one and 40 shekels. And a typical laborer was paid a shekel a month. So if you do the math there, hmm. that's between one month's wage or 40 months wages. That's what it would cost to get married. Yeah, to to purchase, you know, they call it, it, they didn't think of it. It's not the dowry. The dowry is different, but the bride money was paid to the father of the of the bride. Okay, and um and 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 is basically saying, hey, this is a serious arrangement. In fact, if we back out of it, then guess what? We're losing one month's wage to 40 months wages oh it's like it's like one of those like down payment and there's no refunds yeah there's no refunds right so there was a Man. serious arrangement and that provides a little bit of light to joseph's situation in matthew 1 after mary becomes pregnant because that was their uh scenario oh so it, he, he stood to lose a lot he, well he didn't because mary was presumably unfaithful okay so he would have been uh uh free to receive the the oh, bride money back. Okay. People talk about it being a bride price. He's not buying a wife, okay? Um, but it was a money given to the father of the bride uh, to what make certain that he's going to fulfill. It's a demonstration of his commitment. Yes. That's actually, it's like a cost. Right. And so you're not just going to mess around. That's right. not a bad... No, it's not a bad model, which is why we sound like, oh, he's buying a woman. And he's like, property. property. Yeah, property, blah, blah, blah. And actually, if you, it's not even in the Bible, but if you look in old Babylonian literature, uh, Wenham demonstrates this. He refuses to use the terminology bride price because of the connotation that the woman becomes his property. Even within the biblical revelation, it, it's not that way. <clears throat> However, the money does does emphasize the serious nature of okay. the arrangement uh, and is an important part of the, uh, the contract. And because it costs money to raise an individual, a daughter, okay, in a way mm -hmm. it's like compensation for hmm. uh, raising a woman that fears the Lord. Yeah. So yeah. if that kind of makes a little sense, the dowry would then be something different. The dowry would be a monetary gift given from the father to his daughter. Oh, the Okay. Different direction. Mm -hmm. Right. So the groom pays the dad, and then the dad can give a dowry to his daughter. The dowry then becomes the 
possession of the groom. So if it was, say, like something monetary, even though it's not usually money, it was usually more along the lines of, well, you have an illustration of it with, with, uh, with Laban and Jacob, because when um, Jacob uh, gets Leah, what does Jacob include with her? We don't like this, but it's another girl, okay? The, the handmaid. Because what is something that's going to help a young woman be a successful household manager in her new groom's house? A maid. And oh, then interesting. Associated with the various dowry things, it wouldn't just be like a, a servant slash slave, but also cooking utensils or jewelry. Okay. Jewelry would be something. Um, and, and all of those things would become the possession of the groom, which would then make it difficult to divorce because if he's like, oh, I don't like you anymore, go away. Well, what does the husband then need to need to do? Yeah, give it all back. He has to reimburse her and give back the dowry. So that would be a deterrent from just jumping in and out of relationships because he would have a financial loss. Man, that's really interesting. You're using physical things that cost that are not, that's like, what, what's more important? A person, like a human being's life or like 40 months of wages. Right. But it works against the fleshly nature to like make you think about it and ask, are you willing to commit? And then right. if you're going to like go back on it, I mean, it's just, that's really interesting. It's just mm -hmm. add some added benefit to demonstrate it practically, not just with words that can yeah. be cheap. And so that background should help us in understanding the New Testament and what's going on. Because how would you define like that idea of marriage and slash divorce? Hmm. It's very contractual. <clears throat> yeah. You have like made a covenant. A, yeah. Yeah. You have made a contract between parties. And if you want to dissolve the contract, then what do you do? You, you, it costs you something. Yeah, it's you pay back the money. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and you give her the dowry back, and then you send her away. And then if you wanted to marry somebody else, then you'd have to pay the bride price. She would get her dowry, and you accept that woman into your house. And then if you're like, oh, I'm tired of her, get rid of her, whatever, give her the dowry back, and then let her go. It would be a contractual idea of marriage, which is part of this entire conversation. So if you read, for example, Andres Kostenberger, he has a couple of books on marriage. He has one, Marriage and the Family, Biblical Essentials. That's like the slimmed down version. And I would recommend these titles, by the way. The second one is God, Marriage, and Family, Rebuilding the Biblical Foundation. He distinguishes between a contractual and a covenantal idea of marriage. So we would often conflate those two ideas and say that it is covenantal because guess what there was in the Old Testament? A... Covenant. A covenant, a contract. Yeah. Okay. But he makes a distinction between the covenant and the contract. And in the Old Testament, it's primarily contractual. And Jesus kind of changes that, or I would say he doesn't change it. He just correctly interprets the Old Testament and say, no, it's not contractual. And he's going to push back against essentially everything that I just explained to you. Okay. So then what is, does he think it's covenant? Yes. Okay. Cause that, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. But now I'm like, Oh, okay. But I don't know how much I like the idea of covenant either okay. as a word, but 
I'll just go with it for now. And I'll say marriage is not contractual. It's covenantal. But is it? Is there a contractual component to it as well? Well, Well, in the Old Testament, there was. Because the purpose of the contractual component was to zing a party that's trying to take advantage of another party. Yeah. And so when we get to some of these passages in the Gospels, the backdrop of it is a culture an Old Testament understanding that marriage would have been very contractual. Right. And then Jesus is pushing back on that, bringing in this covenant idea, even though it might not be to completely abdicate the contract. Right. That, be... that was a really good summary. Yeah. Okay. Those are I'm really trying good. to, I'm, I, I'm just trying to track with you. Oh yeah. And so I'm, I think I'm on the right page. So So within this contractual idea of covenant, you have Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. So can you read 24, 1 through 4 for us? All right. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Yes. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house... And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay, so in this, this is like a foundational passage, which the Pharisees quote in, well, they allude to it, they don't quote it, they allude to it in Matthew 19. Now, there are two divorces in this text. So what is the first divorce? It's like the first person you've married, mm-hmm. husband thinks you're indecent. So there's, so there's an indecent a more immoral thing. part thing to Correct. this. So Maybe, what yeah. is this indecent thing? And there's legions of literature on this. And this is where Wenham may be right. For they are many. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry to make a joke in the middle of a very serious topic. You're like, there are legions. And I'm like, for there are many. There, there are a lot. And I'm not entirely positive Wenham gets this. So I talk about how much do I agree with Wenham, his exegesis here, his interpretation here, not exegesis, his interpretation here may be wrong. I'm sympathetic to it. It wasn't my view. And so I'm still thinking about it. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah. When somebody you, challenges your view, I don't know. I mean, at least for me, I'm not just going to carte blanche. Yeah, he's right. Okay. Even though he has good arguments for it, but it's something I'm going to think about. I'm just going to say, I'm giving you two light bulb emojis for a vocab point for carte blanche. Well done. Carry on. Okay. So the first person, however, divorces because of something moral. Okay. The, the yeah. uh, ervat devar, the, the indecent thing. Now, why does the second divorce happen? Well, he just hates her. He just, it just says her. he hates her. Yeah. That's all. It doesn't say anything about indecency or sin. Precisely. So in other words, there are two divorces. One is for a presumably legitimate grounds for divorce. Um, the the uh, indecent matter, which would be something of a sexual nature, uh, which would have been really important in the Old Testament world uh, because she would potentially be bringing his his lineage, his patrilineal line uh, under um, con- what contempt and be questionable. And, and so that 
in a court in the Old Testament court, okay, that woman would lose her dowry because she uh, did something wrong, okay? But in the second instance, presumably she would have been given an additional dowry or had an additional dowry from some other, maybe her father gave her a second dowry. So she marries again, and now this guy just hates her. Mm-hmm. So then what does he have to do? We divorce, he gives her the certificate of divorce again. Right. Does he get the money? No, because oh. why doesn't he like her? Just a preference. Yeah. He just like, I don't like you anymore, go away. So now she possesses the dowry of, of uh, the number second two. dowry of number okay. two. Okay. And then Moses is saying, you can't remarry the girl and get a second dowry from her. Okay. So he sees it from a very financial perspective. Uh, which I thought was interesting yeah. and plausible, yeah. but wasn't the view that I had, and I'm just going to present it and let it go, and I don't care because it's not really conting- or relevant to our conversation. Okay. The point is just that you have uh, uh, two different kinds of divorces, and you can see how the financial yeah. implications are all there. Okay. okay, so moving past Deuteronomy 24, we then are going to go to Matthew chapter 5. So 5, 27 through 30 first. So this is Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Okay, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this passage, but Jesus basically is redefining adultery. And how is he redefining adultery? At least redefining it according to the Jewish rabbis of the day and what presumably the law and Moses taught. So what is adultery? Lustful intent. Lustful intent, okay? So it's not simply the act, but actually the heart desire behind it is adultery, and that is sin. It needs to be repented of and dealt with seriously. That's something that's lost in our modern Christian culture even because we are so enslaved to our passions. Uh, It's a Freudian mess up, which is part of the whole, let's kick Freud out of the church type of idea where we've exalted sex specifically to be something that we can't possibly live without. But actually Jesus demonstrated you can live without ever having sex and it's not that big of a deal. Uh, So you need to discipline yourself and you need to realize you are committing a sin in your heart and repent of it and walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay, so I'm done with Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Are there any questions, comments, or nasty remarks? I'll I'll just make the comment that I think the freeing thought that needs to be in the next generation, I think think if if we have anything to do with it, especially if you can get this thing written, is saying sex is no big is not as is not that big of a deal right. it's a very i think that is a drum that needs to keep getting beaten mm-hmm. because the culture has like the double bass set and the whole trap set and it's just like yeah sex sex sex, sex. i mean that's all it's saying right and i feel like we we need to do something to like push back on that yeah and that way you say it i think works mm-hmm. really well it's not that it's unimportant yeah it's just not that big of a deal right it, it, so like, i've tried to communicate that yeah. in our book 
Because yes. there's two sections yep. at the very beginning. Sex is not a big deal. I spent a lot of time on that. And then I had some pushback from a pastor friend and I thought it was legitimate. So then I said, well, it is kind of a big deal because you can really mess your life up <laughs> if yeah. you don't follow God's plan. Um, but at the same time, it's like we've overemphasized this topic like and made it a God and we need to we yeah. need to uh, devote it to destruction. You could say it like this. The misuse of sex is a huge deal. It is. It will wreck things. It discredits the Lord. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you're able to or not biblically is not a big deal. Right. Like you can be single and right. you can walk with the Lord mm -hmm. and you're not missing. Woo. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> high five. <laughs> okay, Who thought so three years ago when we started this podcast, we'd be high five over that. <laughs> May it never be. May it never be. <laughs> Okay, so within the entire conversation, this is actually a very important foundational concept to the discussion, especially as we look into the very next two verses. Okay, so go ahead and read Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so, yeah, you see where I'm going with this? Or, it's not That's... me going anywhere with what? it, because all he did was just read what Jesus had to say. So it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That has been said, it was said by Moses. Wow. In Deuteronomy 24, wow. okay? But I say unto you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason, and then there is the exception clause, except <clears throat> sexual immorality, which we'll talk about later, causes her to commit adultery. So a woman in the ancient world wouldn't have a whole lot of options available to herself if she is divorced, uh, as far as like taking care of herself and being able to provide for herself and living life. Okay, so she needed to be married to somebody. So if a man divorces his wife, then what does she then need to do? Remarry. She needs to remarry. And that's why the man who divorces his wife is doing what? What does the text say? What does Jesus say? Causing her to commit adultery. It's causing her to commit adultery. But wait a minute. What was the law? But I say to you that, who, or I'm sorry, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Well, what does a certificate of divorce imply? What would it imply? If, you were give, if, if a man gave his wife a certificate of divorce, mm -hmm. so it's like you are no longer my wife. The disillusion of the marriage. The, the marriage the is... contractual obligation. Yeah. Contractually is, dissolved. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So now what is she then free to do? Remarry. She is now free to remarry. Okay. It, but is she? Well. What does Jesus say? Uh, if you give her the certificate of divorce, so contractually, which is part of like even like you can read Wenham, part of the, the uh, contractual thing, I am no longer, uh, you are no longer my wife and I am no longer your husband. And sometimes they would have right in the contract, you are free to remarry. Okay, and that was part of the contract. 
So now she can then go, which was actually done for her protection because some conniving guy could like send her away and say, get lost. I'm not providing or protecting you anymore. And then she's like, well, what am I going to do? She goes and finds another guy and Mm. marries him. And now he's like, hey, you're committing adultery because you're my wife. And so Moses preventing all of that mess is like, no, you have to give her a certificate. Hmm. So then people know and you can't, you know, be a conniving jerk and go after her dowry or whatever else. Okay. So, um, so, but, but the view of the contractual idea of divorce is actually what Jesus challenges here because contractually, what did the man do? He freed her. He freed her contractually. He yeah. dissolved it the way it was legally meant legally to. Legally meant to. Yeah, right? but the, it's interesting, but the intent of that certificate being given in the Old Testament, is that what Jesus is keying in on? Yeah, well, just because you think you've dissolved yeah. something, but yeah. have you? Have you? Uh-huh. And according to Jesus in Matthew 5, 32, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, i.e., I am no longer your husband, and you are no longer my wife, you are free to remarry, that's the contractual legal thing that's transpired for any reason except sexual intermorality causes her to commit adultery. Hmm. So in other words, then she goes and remarries and what has she done? Yeah. Committed yep. adultery. Yep. Okay. And then furthermore, follow up with that. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. But wait a minute, I thought she was contractually divorced. In fact, it said in the judicial system that she's free to remarry. And Jesus is like, uh-huh. so, I don't think so. Okay. Okay, so this is the distinction between a contractual view of marriage. And the covenant. Boom. Oh, I see where you're going. So I'm, I've, okay, okay. Okay, so we have this contractual idea even in our culture where you go to the judge, the judge dissolves the, the union, they're divorced, and so I thus, see. what are they then free to do? They're free to... Gotcha. This is saying, let's talk about, you're, you're essentially saying there's like a legal level yeah. that the culture agrees upon, and in the Israelite culture, it's different because it sort of was tied to like right. the law, yeah. but then there's the higher level, you before God with that spouse, and Jesus is saying like, you're thinking down here. This is where you need to think. So then when Jesus said, divorce your wife, except for sexual immorality, what did he mean there? Yeah. So we need to talk about that, but we'll save that for Matthew 19. So Wenham, he makes the statement on page 64, for Jesus, the divorced wife is not free to marry any man. Indeed, no one can marry her without committing adultery. You divorced her. And now if anybody marries her, he is committing, yeah, he is committing adultery by marrying her. The implication of this redefinition of adultery is that the marriage has not been dissolved by divorce. Okay, okay. I see where this so is going. So you need to wrestle with Matthew 5, 31 and 32, <clears throat> particularly what Jesus states in verse 32 <clears throat> and what remarriage is. All right, so we move to Matthew 19. All right. Yeah. Um, why don't you read it, Carter, or whoever give me, has it? Give me one moment. I'm in Matthew. I just have to get to it real quick. What verse are we looking at here? Just start at the beginning. Okay. So Matthew a good 19, place to start. one. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
Okay, so I'll stop you there, and I'll have you read again in a little bit. The purpose of them coming was to test him, and we've already talked about that. They specifically ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Which the house of Hillel believed that you could divorce for just any reason. That was their interpretation of the uh, indecent thing of Deuteronomy 24. And then the house of Shammai said, no, it's only for something uh, sexual. Now, um, so they're basically bringing Jesus into this longstanding debate with among the Jewish rabbis, which, by the way, you can look up that debate and read about it online. It is in the Talmud, Gittin 90a. The house of Shammai say, a man may not divorce his wife unless he finds out about her having engaged in a matter of forbidden sexual intercourse. So, and then it goes on and on. I have it up here. So you can do a Google search and Just find a, that. Just a really brief side comment. Yeah. Explain what the Talmud is. Yes. Uh, okay. So that's rabbinic commentary. So when the Talmud consists of two parts. There's the Mishnah uh, and then the Gemara. And there's two Talmuds, the Palestinian and the Babylonian. But I just let's just summarize. It's the rabbinic commentary on the Old Testament law. So rabbis, Hebrew rabbis. Yep interpreting, giving commentary on the Old mm -hmm. Testament. When were these Talmuds put together or written? Yeah, so the Mishnah was done around 200 AD, so 200 years after Jesus-ish, a little less than that. And then the Talmud was, the, the Gemara, which is a commentary on the Mishnah, it was it was finished like 500 years later, but they it was a long-standing thing. So like, here's another quote. Rabbi Akiva says, he may divorce her even if he found another woman who is better looking than her and wishes to marry her, as Whoa. it is stated in this verse. And it <clears throat> comes to pass if she finds no favor in his eyes. And they're quoting Deuteronomy 24.1. So everybody talks about Hillel and Shammai, but Akiva says, yeah, if he finds a prettier girl, then he can send her away and then marry the prettier girl. So that's the longstanding debate in Gittin, G-I-T-T-I-N, 90A. You can do so a pretty, Google search for it and read that. sketchy hermeneutical principles being applied there, that's like, which is not uncommon of the Jewish rabbis. So you can see how that's the setting for then Jesus's instruction here in Matthew 19. Yeah, That's like the original party of the no-fault divorce laws. Yeah, that's it. It literally is. It, in like the 70s or whatever, right. when those were repealed, it was the Akiva party in our country. We just didn't know it. Yeah. Well, it was even Akiva, but the Hillel was basically, you can divorce her for any reason. So oh, it could okay. be anything, including, well, I found a prettier girl and I want to marry her. So uh, the that was the longstanding tradition. Okay. Shammai was trying to shore it up and saying, okay. no, you can only do it for if there's some okay. sexual misconduct. Um, but the longstanding tradition is you could just divorce her for whatever reason you want. For for whatever reason, you it have, was contractual. For for whatever reason, she has lost value in the right. husband's eyes. Right. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. And so Jesus is going to now interact with that. Yeah. So verse four. His fingers on the nuclear launch. As we said at the beginning, you know, jump into a landmine, right? <laughs> so uh, verse four. So I'll legs. read the question again. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Okay. So we'll stop you again. Now, Jesus has just answered their question. And what is the answer to the question? What is the answer to the question? A question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Classic Jesus move. Yeah. And where does Jesus go? Does he go to Deuteronomy 24? 
No. Goes to creation. So he goes to creation. Yeah. And so he states who has joined the couple together. God. God has. All right. Which, so, total side note. Yeah. In the this momentary marriage by Piper, he makes a big point of that. Yeah. And I really liked that because mm-hmm. he's saying that when you when you get married, I think we think it's us getting married in the past where he's like, this right. is actually an act of God. Uh-huh. And like you need to remember that. I think that gives a much higher view of the relationship, right? Than our current Disney romance, Hollywood, mm-hmm. Freudian, whatever. So yeah, I like that he goes there. That's helpful. Yeah, we need to remember that. Yeah, and we do because when you contractually, when you get married, okay, you know, estates for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, what can dissolve that one flesh union? Death. Death. Literally. Okay? Literally. That's it. Okay. The the judicial courts, Jesus just said in Matthew 5, do not and cannot dissolve it because it's something that you have agreed to covenantally before God. And in consummating the marriage, you've created a one flesh union between a husband and wife, and death alone dissolves it. And that's according to Romans 7. Okay. So, shall we keep going? Yeah. So... He follows that up. Have you not read that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And that's really important, because who might be the man who is separating the husband and the wife? The certificate of divorce. The certificate of the Mm -hmm. divorce. So the judge, all right? He doesn't have the power and authority to divide them. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 7. So they, the Pharisees, said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Okay, so here you have them saying Moses commanded to give a certificate of divorce, which actually is not what Moses said. So Ooh, Moses this is satanic then. It's like close to the truth. It's but close not. to the truth, but not. I don't know if I would call it satanic. Well, Maybe. how did Satan operate in the garden? Yeah, okay. close to the truth, but not. But not. Okay, so okay, okay. Moses explicitly Westonian. West. It's Westonian. <laughs> he says, "Let him." It's something that he is permitted to do. It's not commanded to do. So, in other words, if you want to dissolve the union, i.e., because there has been some kind of immorality or whatever. <clears throat> Well, this is how you have to go about doing it. That's the command part, if you want to. But guess what's not commanded? You to do that. That you need to do that. Mm-hmm. So even if there's been an ervatevar, the naked matter, okay. The, sorry, the Hebrew... I love it when you drop out the Hebrew, man. Okay. It just gives me the all excited. The issue is because there's so many interpretations of the ervatevar. That's the indecent <laughs> thing in Deuteronomy 24. You guys are horrendous. <laughs> I just, okay. I think I just went. Rah, rah. I, think, I think I pronounced it correctly, and then Andy just goes. Rah, rah. <laughs> okay, he was, he was on track. He was on. Okay, so uh, they misunderstand Moses by saying that that you're you have to uh, commit, you know, divorce her. You don't have a choice to forgive, right? And forget right. and move on. And yeah. And, and by the way, forgiveness. You know what was going on in Matthew 18, the chapter right before this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If if your brother sins against yep. you seventy times seven, then what do you do? You, you forgive. forgive. I don't think that's coincidental. You have Matthew eighteen right before this teaching on divorce 
in Matthew mm-hmm. 19, principle of forgiveness. So continuing in verse 7, they said to him, why didn't, oh, sorry, verse 8 then. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, keyword, permitted you to divorce your wives. And scholar after scholar of in the New Testament, they explain this is simply a permission because of the hardness of hearts. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's not something yeah. that's required for sure, not commanded. See, he's correcting their terminology of commanded. And Jesus states, but from the beginning it was not so, because what is the marriage union? It's a one flesh union that's only dissolved through death. Verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Very similar line that we've seen in Matthew 5 and then in Mark and Luke. Mark and Luke don't include the exception clause. The exception clause is uh, except for sexual immorality. And there's legions of views and literature about the whole except for sexual immorality. I can't go through all of those, but I would push back on what the except for sexual immorality is. And it's still simply a permission So this is a time when you can actually divorce, um, but it's not required, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, judging from the principle of Matthew 18, even if an instance of sexual immorality has transpired, guess what you should be doing or what should be your natural inclination or desire as a Christian, as one who has been forgiven of great trespasses, Mm -hmm. you should also forgive. That is the Christian act. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Exactly. Okay. Did you have something to add? Um, I'm trying to see if I add it now or not. I'll just add it now. It might be out of time. So I have a pretty like conservative view on divorce and it actually comes from Christ and the church metaphor in the New Testament. And so what I've thought before is mm-hmm. if, if my marriage like to Robin, okay. In the, in the past, mm-hmm. if that's supposed to picture Christ in the church, mm-hmm. then is there anything, is there any kind of sin I can commit that Christ would abandon me over? Right. And so I think that's formed me and that formed Robin. That was like our thought, like there really shouldn't be anything. Right. But we're humans and we have hard hearts. Right. And so I think I understand. This almost sounds like that's what this is saying. Is that where Wenham's going? Well, so Wenham is going to go with the accept sexual immorality. What does that refer to? Well, if somebody is living in outright sin, particularly of a sexual nature, well, then how do you handle that? All right. So that would be a, a grounds for divorce. But what would then be the additional response? So how do you handle it after that? You, Go and remarry? Well, we're going to get to that. Exactly. Mm. And so what does Jesus say? Okay. So there is a situation Jesus seems to provide for where, you know what, that person is living in outright sexual sin and what would might be the best course of action for that individual. You okay. divorce them okay. and you send them away. And it's like a First Corinthians five type hand of a situation. Oh. You hand them over to Satan okay. for the destruction of the flesh mm-hmm. and the salvation of their souls. Now that's really hard stuff, and that's not oh. a popular view within our culture. Mm-hmm. But that's what Wenham is arguing is what's <clears throat> going on here. And so thus what would then be the responsibility of the innocent party? Yeah. And and so we're we're like hovering on the line between permissible divorce and mm-hmm. permissible remarriage. Right. 
and some see those as full overlap like correct one permits the other or does not permit the other which is the contractual view yes and so we're we're about to get or we're on the cusp of some very complicated if this then this type of scenarios yes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so what it states in our passage here what does jesus say i say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another uh commits adultery Okay, so what would then this be? Well, you're divorcing and then you are remarrying. What have you done? You've committed adultery because what is marriage? It is a one flesh union uh, for as long as you both live. That's what it is in the eyes of God. Okay, so people are like, well, what does the except for sexual immorality refer to? D.A. Carson in his commentary says it's the whole thing. Well, in the Greek, the except for sexual immorality precedes the whoever divorces his wife. And so the remarriage would be a separate matter. So in other words, the man who, whose wife sins, could, who sins sexually, he could divorce her. Could, not required. Could, if that might be the best situation for her. But he can't remarry um, in, in, in hoping that she would repent and return to him. Then continuing, whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery, which makes a lot of sense because mm-hmm. guess what? If you are having you know some kind of relationship with some woman that's been divorced, well, what does she need to do? She needs to return to her original husband. And if you go and marry her, then what have you done? Yeah. You've committed adultery because in the eyes of God, that union is not dissolved yeah. until one of the parties dies. It's interesting because in the, in the um, Deuteronomy passage, I was thinking this, but it's even it's even here. So the you can almost imagine a scenario that's so common where you have a husband and a wife mm-hmm. and it could be either party we'll just go with the the wife she strays and commits adultery with this dude and so husband divorces her and then who's she going to remarry right the guy she's with and then if if you've heard the stories like this before that after a while they're like yeah, i don't really like you it's not mm-hmm. immorality they just mm-hmm. don't like each yeah. other and they he hates her. It's, you can almost see that scenario. It doesn't have right. to be that. I'm just right. saying like, man, that would, that would fit the common human experience of being dissatisfied, being discontent, right. looking at the other grain of pasture. And, mm-hmm. and then once you've gone out there, you've, you've sort of shot yourself in the foot forever. You can't go back. Right. And that's like a, that's going to destroy your flesh. Right. That's going to, that's going to really pummel you and humble mm-hmm. you. And that could be what God is going to use to save your soul. Yeah, exactly. You. Yeah. Yep. And we, totally we won't see dwell that. on this, but what makes this uniquely difficult <clears throat> is that depending on whether you're reading from a majority text translation or a critical, some of the phrases aren't all present. Yeah. And so Tim has read from one of those that right. has an additional clause, which is actually kind of sneaky because if I would have kept reading it, we wouldn't have had it because the ESV doesn't have that last clause. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a separate issue. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll just keep going. <laughs> Charlie threw the landmine. It just hasn't landed and exploded yet. <laughs> there are some textual issues. And anyway, that is another discussion. But let's get into then the response, because as we've already noted, it's not that Jesus just ostracized the Pharisees, the Hillelites, but which of course he's going to, you know, 
bop them. But then even the the, the the other ones, the Shamites, I forgot their name. But also, even his own disciples are like, if such is the case with a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Because, I mean, this is going to really stink. You actually would then have to remain unmarried until she repented and turned back uh, to you. It's almost like maybe Hosea exemplified <laughs> this. So continuing in verse it's so 11. so good to have an OT guy at the table. Honestly. But he said to his disciples, all cannot accept the saying, but only those to whom it has been given. And this is where I'm like, wow, you know, what he is saying is extremely radical, very radical. And then what does he talk about in verse 12? Unix. Unique people. Unique, Unique. people. <laughs> two, for their, two light bulbs for you, sir. For there are eunuchs who were born Three. thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. The verb accept is recalling what Jesus is saying in verse 11. All cannot accept this saying, which hmm. is in response to the disciples' response to Jesus's teaching on divorce. In other words, what Jesus is saying is very radical and seems to have something to do with eunuchs in verse 12. And so what Wenham and others argue is that, guess what the eunuchs are? Those would be the ones that have been sinned against, and then they remain eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And I would say that this is another aspect where we need to kick Freud out of the church because we've bought into the idea that, well, I can't be happy if I can't have sex. And my wife has left me. I keep using the wife leaving because that's the analogy of the text. You can flip yeah. the gender thing around. Yeah. That's not a. That's not the issue. Okay, but 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 that you can live a complete and a good and a righteous and holy life uh, for the kingdom of God's sake, and that's what Jesus seems to advocate here in Matthew nineteen eleven and twelve. Okay, are we good with that? Or shall we keep? Shall I keep going? Sure. Go ahead. So Romans chapter seven talks about verse two. I'm just going to go to verse two. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. Now, some people might say I'm reading into this, but if this is the line of thinking, what do you have in verse three? While her husband lives, let's say that they're divorced, but her husband's alive, but she marries another man, then what is she doing? Committing adultery. She's committed adultery. Seems okay. to be the same theology that we've developed already from Matthew 5 and 19. Then 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16, um, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain alone unmarried yeah. or be reconciled to her husband huh. and a husband is not to divorce his wife so this seems to be the same teaching that we see in matthew 5 and 19 additional relevant texts seem to be malachi 2 and mark 10 mark 10 simply applies it to woman also in the jewish context a woman would, I mean, she's just very unlikely that she's going to actually instigate a divorce. I mean, culturally and politically or uh, socially, that would be really hard for her. But in a Roman culture, that was much more likely. And so Mark 10 seem, includes the woman's not to divorce her husband clause. Malachi 2 seems to be a specific cultural situation, uh, which is an exception. 
and I would not develop a theology from Malachi 2 and what is, except that God hates divorce. So Ezra, they started intermarrying. Mm -hmm. And so there was that one instance where God's like, or they're like, you need to put away your foreign wives. All right. So it's like, let's wrap this up. Let's, let's bring this to a close. So I'm going to end with, um, actually I have two things I want to end with. First, I have this Matthew commentary by David Turner in the Baker exegetical commentary on the new Testament. And he presents the views kind of nicely. Most Protestant scholars take, uh, the, the former view, uh, but there are no more exceptions. I know I'm jumping into something, but he's those who take the latter view tend to view 19, 11 through 12 as requiring celibacy for those who have been divorced. So that's what I basically just argued, okay, is the latter view, what he calls the latter view. He pushes back against that. The issue cannot be fully resolved by grammatical arguments alone, but the view that both divorce and remarriage are permitted in the case of infidelity seems more likely. So he's disagreeing with what I just presented. If divorce does not convey freedom to remarry, it is essentially meaningless. And I would disagree with that because the purpose of then the divorce would be to make an individual's life more difficult and thus hopefully allow the situations of that difficult life to bring them back to the Lord. Do you know of an Old Testament example of that? Maybe like Hosea and Mm, Gomer. Gomer. All right. Uh, if if divorce does not convey freedom, uh, let's see here. Additionally, it is arbitrary to think that divorced people are universally gifted with celibacy. Repentant people who have been divorced because of infidelity should have the freedom to remarry. So that's Turner's view, and there are others who are like him. And um, you need to be settled in your own conscience on this issue. It's a very personal issue for a lot of people already, so it's mm-hmm. difficult to come to this conclusion or to a conclusion um, without being affected by, by your culture. So I'm going to, I'm going to end with two more things. Sorry, but I want to look at it from a historical perspective. And Wenham talks about the shepherd of Hermes, the Justin martyr and Clement of Alexandria. I'm going to read the section from Clement of Alexandria. Consequently, Clement has not left a systematic exposition of the Christian view of marriage, but various remarks show he shared some of the same principles we find in Hermes and uh, the Shepherd of Hermes and Justin. So then uh, he goes and quotes, I'm going to skip ahead, any remarriage during the life of one's spouse is adultery. Okay, so the person is living still, And then remarriage while that other person is living is considered adultery. And then he states, and whoever divorces an adulterous person, adulterous spouse must remain single. So this was the view of Clement of Alexandria and other notable church historians. So this isn't something that we're just kind of ripping out of context and there's no historical support for it. There is some historical support for it as well. Yeah, and and Clement of Alexandria would be... Uh, pretty early. Would we classify as patristic or right after the, in the patristic age or where, yeah. where is that land? Oh, that's like uh, the, around hundred AD. Yeah. So he's, and, and not that we think that all patristic ideas are correct just because they're early, but that is worthy of consideration is that some of these people uh, could have met, you know, a, so, a second generation like a polycarp. So something. it was 150 AD yeah. to 215 AD for Clement of Alexandria, a little later than I thought. Yeah. 
but he's he's in the zone where mm-hmm. he's he's interacting with some of the disciples disciples if that makes sense yes mm-hmm. so um there's more that can be said we're going long already but i want to just conclude with what Wenham concludes with in his epilogue those who are concerned to promote the no remarriage line must proceed with the utmost tact and discretion for there are countless sincere believers who ignorant of the correct reading of the gospel divorce sayings have themselves remarried or encouraged others to marry again they have done this in all innocence and have often been greatly blessed in their relationships or ministry They are vivid reminders that God blesses us in spite of our failings and weaknesses, not because we are perfect. So this is a very personal and private issue that affects a lot of people. It affects me, and I'm sure it affects people that you know as well. So being tactful and gracious. But as I work at a Bible college and I am teaching young people about marriage and its importance, this is where I'm at. And I'm going to stand here pretty strongly because these young people and the next generation need to understand what are you signing up for? It's not a contract, it's a covenant and it's permanent regardless of that spouse's behavior. And if they abandon you, then you remain single. You pray for them that God would call them back to himself that you may then remarry each other. This is God's design. And if the person continues in a life of devastation and destruction, well, Tamar had a couple of husbands that were along those lines and God took care of them. And that may be the last resort, but pray for deliverance for that person and that there would be union. Because guess what? That's what God views it as. It's a union and there's no going back. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.